Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. The first interview is with freelance writer and game designer Matt Forbeck. His history is too long and detailed to list here, but it is only a Google search away. We talk about his journey of taking his shotguns and sorcery stories and turning them into a new RPG. We discuss what it is like to license the use of Monty Cook's cipher system, as well as the unforeseen disasters occurring after the Kickstarter funded. Matt is an industry veteran, and there is a lot to learn. The second part is a discussion with Ben Lawrence about stat blocks. Yes, you heard me correctly. Stat blocks. Apparently, I have an axe to grind, and Ben humors me. I intended for this to be a 10-minute banter back and forth, but this grew in scope, and our dialogue took on a life of its own. This show is, unapologetically, RPG Ramblings, and this is what you get. This is a long episode, and time is a-wasting. Let's get rambling. Hello, Matt. Hey, Jeff. So, we're here to talk about uh, shotguns and sorcery. Uh, for those that don't... Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard of it? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> the, uh, so, for those, uh, for those of you at home... Uh, uh, participating at home. Uh, this is uh, this is Matt's intellectual property, and we're going to discuss how you started with how it started, but ultimately uh, this turned into a, a role playing game utilizing the cipher system. And you know, and right now that you're you're doing a lot of the fulfillment from the Kickstarter, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between including a Kickstarter and a number of, I guess, issues that occurred during the Kickstarter mm-hmm. uh, that I think is actually, um, it would be, uh, not only does I find it interesting, um, but also I'm sure it might be helpful for those listening to to maybe, maybe that's something you can prepare, but it's something back in your mind too when, when, when working on projects of this scale. So if you would, why don't you just give us a little history of shotguns and sorcery and, and how it started and, and what it's about. Sure. Uh, Shotguns and Sorcery is kind of a pet project of mine, has been for a long time. Um, It's uh, a combination of the two biggest influences in my life, literary-wise, which would be Raymond Chandler and J.R.R. Tolkien, right? So Chandler was the guy who wrote uh, uh, all sorts of great hard-boiled noir detective fiction. And of course, Tolkien was the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings and created Middle-earth and all that. So, I always liked having, uh, I always liked the fantasy stuff, but I always liked stuff that had a, a harder, more realistic edge to it as well. Felt more real to me. And that's where the hard boiled stuff comes into me. Um, originally, I came up with this idea for shotguns and sorcery. God, it was way back when, um, sometime in the 90s. And then Wizards of the Coast had a, a uh, world setting hunt they did around year 2000, 2001. I forget which one it was for uh, they said, hey, any players out there want to give us a one page idea for a world setting, send it in. So I said, oh, I'll write up shotguns and sorcery finally. And I'll send it in. And of course it didn't get picked because there was like 10,000 entries. Yes, I can't um, imagine going through 10,000 Yeah, they talked to me about it. There was like literally, you know, they, they thought they'd get a few hundred or whatever. And they literally had <laughs> boxes stacked up to the ceiling in the, in the room that they had uh, set up for this. And, you know, they had to bring in extra people to go through it all. It was crazy. 
Um, eventually ended up picking uh, Keith Eberron's setting, which became Eberron, or Keith, sorry, Keith Baker's setting. Yeah. <laughs> you can call Keith Eberron now. I oh, think yeah, it's, you it's might know him that way. <laughs> now, Keith is a great guy. And actually, you know, the funny part is I had actually uh, kind of mentored him into freelancing. He had been uh, doing computer game design and such, and a little bit of tabletop design before that. And uh, for Atlas Games and the guys over at Atlas, John and Michelle Nephew contacted me and said, would you be willing to show Keith the ropes so he would understand what he needs to know to get into full-time freelancing? I said, sure. So, you know, I talked to him on the phone a couple of times, met him at Gen Con. Uh, we still hook up at Gen Con like every, so every year, every summer, we spend a couple hours together either grabbing a beer or just catching up in the hallway. Uh, but Gen Con, you have to actually carve out time to see your friends, right? Because otherwise right. there's just not enough time to see everybody. But Keith and I go way back. And so I was really proud of him and, and happy for him when he did this. We just finished playing his new game, uh, which he did for the Adventure Zone, by the, uh, which is the podcast the McElroy brothers do for uh, Dungeons and Dragons play and other play now too. But he did this wonderful storytelling card, uh, storytelling card slash board game um, that we did a that he did a Kickstarter for and we just ended up playing it last week because it finally shipped and it was fantastic fun. Anyhow, getting back to shotguns and sorcery, I, uh, uh, came up with the idea, I wrote it up for this, and then shit, said, shit, you know, just because I didn't win this long shot doesn't mean I want to abandon it. Uh, I had just left Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and so this was about 2001, 2000, 2001, and I thought, you know, I'm writing all this D20 stuff for everybody else right now because D20 had just come out, I guess, in 2000, so it must have been 2001, and, uh, or third edition Dungeons & Dragons. And I should write my own stuff. I should just, you know, I'm established enough now. I can actually find somebody to license this from me. And what they're going to do is license the IP from me, and then they're going to pay me to write it. And I thought, well, it's a brilliant idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, believe it or not, I actually managed, I was talking to the guys at White Wolf, and I was talking to a bunch of other people eventually. And eventually Mongoose Publishing, which had done a bunch of D20 stuff in those days, said, yeah, we'd love to do that with you. Um, so we were all set to do it. This was the fall of 2001. I remember Gen Con 2001 uh, talking to Matt Sprang, who was the guy who was running uh, Mongoose in those days. Still is, as far as I know. And uh, then my wife got pregnant with quadruplets in uh, September or November. And, well, we started getting her pregnant in September of that year, November. And then we knew for sure she was pregnant in December of that year. So uh, all my plans for 2001, two went right out the window. And that included shotguns and sorcery just because I wasn't gonna have enough time to do it. I was also at the time developing the Lord of the Rings role-playing game. This is back when the, the films were still uh, being made. So I remember being uh, with my wife when she was in the hospital room for 10 weeks and full bed rest, drugged up to her eyeballs to make sure the kids didn't come early. So what version of, the, of Lord of the Rings was it at that time? This was the Decipher version. Right? Okay. So I was actually, uh, uh, one of the developers, originally Steve Long had started out, Christian Moore was the guy who was behind it. And then Steve uh, ended up getting the rights to the hero system, which is Steve's favorite system of all time. And so he said, guys, I love you. I love the Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to go off and do superhero stuff. Because uh, that was the basis of Champions and many other games. Yeah. Um, and one of my first writing gigs was actually for Western Hero for Iron Crown Enterprises way back in the day in like 91, something like that. That was kind of a confusing, weird mess with Iron Crown owning a hero system. It was. In fact, I did the hero system book. I did this Western hero book. And then we also did a role master version of the same book. So basically, I took all the text, 
and then converted all the stats over from hero system to uh role master which is like arms law claw law whatever and yeah. uh that was those are not two very friendly systems to work with right but it, it ended up working out it, it but it was you can see why you wouldn't just say kids just make this yourself you'd say well it's funny because in the adventurers club i think they the it was kind of a i think they didn't they kind of put both systems in there and then they came up with like conversion charts but yep. it's just like they're not it's still like that's just insane no they do very interesting different things like the hero system compresses terribly at the low-end human version of it right of, of stats and the role master tends to work in that gritty area and then kind of pale out when you go a little bit higher than that for like oh i see what you're saying yeah type stuff right so for instance i did all these conversions and uh you know this was edited in fact my editors were rob bell who was one of the early uh hero system editors and monty cook in one of his first jobs in the role-playing game industry uh monty went on to be one of the designers of third edition right now does all sorts of amazing stuff in the cypher system too so we'll get to the cypher system a little bit so they, I think that's actually partially answering one of the questions I'll be asking later. Yeah, is, exactly. Is what it's a... so, yeah, why? You know, well, okay. So I was working with Monty, and so he edited the Western Hero book I wrote. And, uh, you know, one of the, I think John Kavalik, who was actually a good buddy of mine, maybe somebody else did a Murphy's Rules bit for Steve Jackson games about the scorpions in uh, Western Hero that were, because, again, it compresses so tightly down at the low end, the scorpions, who you should be able to just stomp on, were actually... Uh, strong enough that they could pick up a safe, walk away with it, and you could not kill them with a baseball bat, right? Um, but wait a minute, but isn't that a good world to be in? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it's a very dangerous world to be in, a lot of ways, right? Um, having been stung by a scorpion myself, I wouldn't recommend it. That, yeah, I had much prefer being with the ones I could stop on than having to get the baseball bat out for the shotgun. Um, so, uh, in fact, in some later product, I actually wrote up a joke bit where the scorpions were like, you know, robbing, you know, trains and shit, and you had to protect the, uh, the train from the scorpions. So it becomes this ongoing joke. Anyhow, um, so I, I came up with this uh, setting, sold it to the mongoose people, um, and then it just got blown out of the water by the, arri the arrival of four kids in my house at the same time. And... Uh, about 10 years later, something like that, uh, Robin Laws, I can't even remember the, the timeline of this exactly, but Robin has got this, Robin is a fantastic game designer. Um, he's done Hill Folk and Gumshoe and uh, Feng Shui and all sorts of different amazing games. Uh, one of the top role-playing game designers in the world um, has this idea for literary stuff where he says, you know, there's everybody always talks about the dramatic hero, which are the ones that they go in, they have a life-changing event and they become transformed by this. And at the end of the story, they're somebody new, right? And that's what you often see in television, uh, film especially, because there's these one-off stories um, and in origin stories for superheroes, et cetera. But what Robin is interested in was not just that, but what he called the iconic hero, which was a hero that uh, actually went in and then changed the world around him or her by being true to themselves, right? So for instance, Sherlock Holmes, Batman, anybody in serial fiction at all, essentially, right. right? Wonder Woman. These are characters that don't have these amazing changes. Things change around them, right? Um, and occasionally they'll have big events, but it, almost always they revert to some status quo at some point personally while the world around them changes or they have an effect upon the world. So uh, Robin commissioned a book of two anthologies of stories like this called The New Hero uh, that was published by Pelgrim Press. 
And for mine, I wrote up a story featuring Max Gibson, who's the hero of these shotguns and sorcery stories. Um, and I enjoyed doing this. So and then Steve Sullivan, who uh, was one of the guys early at TSR and then with Paysetter, I used to play test games for when I was a kid. Uh, Steve was running uh, or helping run the Origins Writing Symposium, a writer's track. And he asked me for another short story. And I'm like, oh, I'll go do another shotguns and sorcery story. Cool. And I did that. And then uh, I'm like, wow, I'm actually enjoying this. So I should write more of these. Then in 2012, I did this thing called uh, 12 for 12. I had this really crazy idea. Um, I'm a fairly fast writer, so I can write, when I'm cooking, I write about 5,000 words a day, right? And um, I, I calculated out, I'm like, ah, I can write a dozen novels in a year, so I'm going to write a dozen novels in 2012. <laughs> and uh, I tried to cheat it a little bit. I'm like, they're going to be short novels, and they're going to each be a trilogy. So the short novels were 50,000 words. 40,000 words is generally the cutoff for any award saying that this is not a novella, this is a novel, right? Uh, so I'm, I, but you know, typically, especially in the pulp days, two, uh, uh, a 50,000 word novel is not unheard of. You know, like the Elric stories or uh, uh, any of those thin ace doubles that you used to read when you were kids, the Edward Rice Burroughs books, the Tarzan books, these were often in that range, right? Um, and I'm gonna divide these up into trilogies and I'm gonna write, so four trilogies, and I'm gonna run a Kickstarter for each one of them and I'll write them as I go. Uh, I miscalculated a bit because I didn't realize that Kickstarters took forever to actually, they're actually a job in and of themselves to run a Kickstarter, right? And then to fulfill them becomes part of the job as well. And not just the writing part and the editing and the covers and everything, all the other publishing stuff I already knew, uh, but actually to design all the stuff and, and make it happen at the financial level with Kickstarter was a trick. So uh, I actually managed to, that year, I didn't quite hit a dozen novels, but I wrote 10 novels, nine of which were for the 12 for 12. Uh, one of which was a uh, tie-in for the Leverage TV show, which was like an 85,000 word novel. Oh, yeah. I wrote, uh, I think, nine issues of Magic the Gathering comic books that year and a uh, novelette for StarCraft II for, uh, for Blizzard. So I like to, I say I failed, but I failed well, right? Uh, so I think part of that is setting your goals high and then not being too discouraged if you don't quite hit everything. Uh, part of that also is saying, you know, even if I didn't do this, I still have to finish these damn books. I, I can't, you know, somebody paid me money for these. I consider that a sacred trust uh, to then deliver on them. So it took me a while longer to deliver on the on the last of those trilogies. The first trilogy was based on Brave New World, which was a superhero role-playing game I had done in 1999. Second trilogy was Shotguns and Sorcery. Third trilogy was um, uh, Dangerous Games, which was a series of thrillers and mysteries done at Gen Con. Uh, and the fourth trilogy was a something called Monster Academy, which was a uh, chapter book series for fantasy. Uh, it's kind of set in a world where the monsters have all been defeated. And then what do you do with the baby monsters? Do you kill the baby monsters? <laughs> right? Where, this is your yeah. ethical dilemma as any role-playing gamer. You've, you've gone into the dungeon, you've beaten the orcs, but there's a family of baby orcs over here in the corner. What do you do with the baby orcs? Are they inherently evil? I say no. So we actually send them off to the Monster Academy, otherwise known as the Royal Academy for Creature Habilitation. Not rehabilitation, because they've not actually been deemed fit for society at any particular point, but we're going to get them to that point. So that was the, the fourth trilogy. And it took me a while to get to that one, because in 2013, uh, I had I ended up uh, having an autoimmune disease kick in with that cost me a quarter, half the vision in my right eye. 
Um, and uh, my dad got sick and ended up having a, I think in 2014, yeah, 2014 ended up having a heart and kidney transplant. Uh, wow. My mother had some health issues. It was crazy. So things got delayed. Life just came, basically came in and kicked me around a little bit. Um, but you know, th that happens, right? Th that happens in every publishing endeavor. The trick is that most publishing endeavors, you don't hear about it because the book isn't announced or the project or the game, whatever, isn't announced until four months before it's actually in its shelves. And that's because in the traditional solicitation system we have for sales, the things that go through uh, bookstores and comic book stores and game stores, nobody needs to know about it until four to six months before it actually gets delivered. And if it's gonna take you three months to get it printed, that means really nobody knows about it until just before you're going to press, right? Um, which means that all these crazy things that happen to somebody in their life, uh, they happen, but you don't know about them because we haven't announced them until then. Right. Right. But when we do start doing Kickstarters, we have to tell you earlier than that. Because, for instance, when I was doing the novels, I hadn't written the books. Right. Uh, it was really a, like, do you guys trust me to write these books? Yes. Good. I'm off to write the books. Shit. Life happened in the middle of the fourth one, a fourth trilogy. So now I have to delay things. I eventually delivered every, everything um, because again, I, these are things I take very seriously and, but I have to pay bills in the meantime. So other things came and messed with that. Um, but I always try to make sure that if somebody's gonna pay me money and uh, fans are depending on me to put this stuff out, I put it out, right? Now with Shotguns and Sorcery, after having delivered the second trilogy, um, I was contacted by a company that did, uh, I don't remember the name of the stuff now, but they did these enhanced eBooks uh, one of which was, I think Jordan Stratford did one um, based on Frankenstein, right? Which is, it was beautiful. It had music, it had animation, it had maps, all this cool stuff. Um, and uh, they contacted me and said, we'd like to do uh, your books, your shotguns and sorceries books as enhanced eBooks. But first we're gonna do this other Kickstarter and then we'll do yours as the third. And they did their second Kickstarter and they failed miserably. So they're like, well, uh, that business model is not working. The first one they did with Jordan was fantastic. It just blew the doors off. It was huge. Hmm. But the second one didn't do very well. And they had lined up like a whole bunch of different creators to do different stories. And none of them panned out. So uh, they looked at me and said, Matt, we can't do this. Uh, nice knowing you. See you later. But the artist they had paired me up with said, no, 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 no. I really want to do that. A guy named Jeremy Moeller. And he had his own publishing company called Outland Entertainment. And... Uh, Jeremy said, well, maybe I don't really know the enhanced ebook stuff, but we can do a role-playing game. I'm like, yeah, that's great, except I already know how to do role-playing games. If I'm going to do a role-playing game, I'll just do it myself, right? But uh, Jeremy picked on me for about two years saying, I, I really still want to do this. I want to do something with you. I'm like, great. And I'm like, eventually, I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm never going to get to doing this because I'm too busy with other projects. So if you want to do the role-playing game, and all I got to do is write the background material, flesh out what I've already got, then sure, let's do this. So I licensed Shotguns and Sorcery to Outland, to Jeremy, and they ran a Kickstarter for it in 2015. Um, the pro and they, they, uh, we decided, you know, I coached them through a lot of this stuff because publishing role-playing games was new to him. He'd done mostly books and comics at that point. Right. And uh, uh, they ended up licensing the Cypher system for, using, for the role-playing game system and hiring a guy named Rob Schwalb to actually do the, the game system to the, yeah. our version of the cipher system for shotguns and sorcery. And Rob's a good friend of mine from way back. Funny part is we actually share the same birthday, right? Okay. Um, and I've known him for many years. 
And uh, as you may have heard before, Monty Cook is the guy who created the Cypher system along with Bruce Cordell and Shauna Germain and a whole crew of other fantastic people. And Charles Ryan and Tammy Ryan who run their business. Charles who actually uh, worked for me at Pinnacle Entertainment Group back when I was the president of Pinnacle. So I guess the question is right now is none of the people that you're mentioning, including yourself, uh, it doesn't appear that your, I would say, um, your expertise wasn't in the cipher system, right? Well, it was for, uh, obviously for Monty. I was not an expert in the cipher system. Um, right, but Monty wasn't doing that. He wasn't doing the writing for this or the game design, right? He was just simply oh, no. licensing. I mean, just I mean, as far as the, you know, Mr. Schwab and yourself. Well, Rob and, actually uh, Jeremy. Cypher, cypher system writing before. Right. Oh, he did. Okay. So that was one of the reasons we hired him on to do it. I mean, I love Rob's work and I would trust him with anything. But the fact that uh, he had done some Cypher system work before meant that Jeremy could trust him to do a good job with this. Right. So why did Jeremy pick the Cypher system? Well, he went, we went through a lot of different ones. I actually prepared this thing where I'm like, here are the free ones you can use. Here are the other ones that are available for licensing. Uh, we probably would have gone with fifth edition at the time, except there was no OGL for fifth edition in 2015. Right. Right. So now there is, right? Uh, but at the time, we weren't allowed to use fifth edition. We could have gone and used third or maybe tried to use fourth uh, for it, but we decided that we'd be better off using a system that we knew that we were legally clear on everything and that was reasonably priced. And we knew the people that we were working with, them, they would be good for working with for approvals. And also, the Cypher system is a pretty sharp system, right? It fit with the game system pretty well or the, with the background. And uh, uh, I had known Monty and his crew for many years and trusted them implicitly. Oh, yeah. And I enjoy the Cypher system. I think it's a good system. But I mean, as far as I think the, the genre, I think people tend to kind of automatically kind of go into the the D&D style. Oh, of course. Right. You know, mechanic. Third edition system, or, uh, game setting, right? Yeah. Um, that's So it would have made perfect sense to go to fifth edition. And although we haven't officially announced it yet, we are working on a fifth edition version of it now. My eldest son is sense. working on it, and he's going to be uh, doing a lot of the writing for it. Uh, and then we'll run a Kickstarter for that. But given all the Kickstarter problems that have been in in the past, I don't want to do that until we actually have a manuscript in hand. Right. Start doing stuff. Um, because once we have a manuscript in hand, we already have the layout for the original book. We have a lot of artwork from the original book. We'll commission some new artwork, but most of it will be from the original book. And producing a fifth edition version of Shotguns and Sorcery is not going to be nearly the challenge is producing the original game was, especially if we already had the writing in hand. So, um, so what we did, oh, Jeremy then did this. He hired me to write, do the writing, Rob did the rules. Uh, he hired some other editors, Alana Abbott, Jolie, I think uh, did the editing. And uh, actually another woman whose name is escaping me at the moment, did some of the early editing too. Ellie Ann uh, Soderstrom uh, did some of the original editing too. And, uh, and then uh, Jeremy ended up going through divorce, uh, which kind of threw everything into chaos for him. He didn't have oh, the, yeah. uh, the wherewithal, the bandwidth to basically handle all of his other publishing products and going through divorce and trying to fight for custody with his for his children, all this kind of stuff. So again, life, this is something that if you hadn't known about ahead of time, you'd only found out six months before it was going on and everything would have been in place. But because of that, it threw a wrench in the works and Jeremy, had originally wanted to do every piece of artwork for the book, right? Uh, and that proved to be impossible. He, uh, you know, you'd see uh, they did the cover for the book. He did a lot of the interior artwork for the book, but uh, he ended up commissioning a lot of the artwork from other people and paying for that out of his pocket to actually get the, the book out on time. Well, not even on time, years late. 
So by the time the book was ready to go, it was 2020. And uh, I think 20, you might have actually started shipping out books to backers in late 2019. And my original license with him had been for five years with the two-year extension. And uh, we looked at each other and I said, Jeremy, uh, I, if you want to keep going with this, I understand. Um, but if it'd be easier on you for me to take this over at this point, why don't we just let the license expire? Um, and one of the ways I had done the license was that anything had been done for the game, I owned, right? So it wouldn't be an orphaned game. Because one of the things I've always hated is that if you do something for a game or a license like that, and then the license expires, and then nobody's allowed to touch it ever again. Right. Right. Uh, so uh, the way I set it up, and it was in black and white from the beginning, is whatever development work is done in the game, anything like that, artwork, uh, writing, etc. I own all that at the end of the day when this expires, right? Your license, you know, you're going to pay me a licensing fee for this because it's my property. And if uh, the game goes the way of the dodo at some point, I own that, can republish it or license it out to somebody else to publish it. So uh, I said, okay, we're done. What we're going to do is you're going to complete the artwork for the game. I'm going to complete the layout and editing for the game for the other products uh, that were promised as part of the stretch goals to the Kickstarter. And then we're done, right? We're going to, we're going to finish this up. So currently we've got the main book out. We've got a player's guide out. Uh, my son, Marty, wrote the Monsters and Mean Streets, which was the uh, uh, the monster book for it. He's written, and that's out. Uh, we've got a card deck that's done for encounters, like as often done for Cypher System stuff. That was out. That's all been produced since I took over for that stuff in early 2020. Um, and we also, right now, I have a manuscript for Pathfinder conversion in hand that Marty wrote and that we had Owen Casey Seiler, or I'm sorry, Owen Casey Stevens, um, Owen Seiler is another buddy of mine from the Decipher Games days, and I always mix those names up. Owen Stevens, actually, who worked for Paizo, did the editing and development work on that, so we know it's going to be rock solid. And we have an adventure that's been promised that Marty wrote, and I'm in the middle of editing right now. We also have a comic book that everything is done except for the cover and the lettering that I wrote, and uh, we had the artwork done for and everything else. Um, so we're very close to finishing. I think we're probably within the next six months, we have all the stuff out the door and be done with it. Uh, and again, that's because in, in, legally and technically, I am not obligated for any of this stuff, right? Uh, right. That was Outland Enter Entertainment that did that. And if I wanted to, I could have just washed my hands, walked away from it and said, geez, guys, I'm sorry these people screwed you. But, you know, for one, I know that Jeremy didn't intend to screw anybody. Right. And for two, I feel because it's my property, I feel an obligation to get that stuff out the door to people. Even if it ends up costing me money in the short term, I think the right thing to do is get that stuff delivered. And I, uh, like I said, we're going to do this fifth edition version of it, but I'm not going to run a Kickstarter for it until one, the original Kickstarter is fulfilled. And two, we have a manuscript in hand so that the gap between when we have the Kickstarter run and when we're able to deliver it is as short as we can really make it be. Right. And, and, and not to throw more confusion, but I don't, did you realize that, um, that Savage Worlds is, partnered with uh, Paizo to do Adventure yes, Paths. Exactly. So I think this might be like, not to say, well, have you thought about, you know, but it's like, this might be a, a grand time to actually look at the, um, possibly, because I, I don't know the inside dealings, but uh, Savage Worlds. Yeah, very true. I mean, possibly, you know, Shane and I still get along pretty well. Um, haven't uh, seen him in a while because he hasn't gone to Gen Con in a few years. And of course, we didn't have Gen Con last year. Yeah. Uh, but we still keep up with each other online. And I know what he's been working on keeping 
doing. Savage Worlds in a very real way was an extension of what we did with Deadlands and then what I did with Brave New World, which was published by Pinnacle originally. And uh, and then what we did with the Great Rail Wars, which was our miniatures game at the time. So uh, yeah, it's certainly a possibility. I think our first market for that's going to be fifth edition. But uh, if there was enough demand for it, I'd certainly consider doing a Savage Worlds edition. of it. And so, you know, because obviously, I mean, you know, the Cypher system is, um, is already developed and making use rather than develop your own yep. uh, system. Was there anything that that needed to be tweaked within that system in order to get oh, yeah. you what you want? I mean, the, the basic system itself is rock solid, right? But even Monty Cook Games came out with Cypher System Second Edition, essentially, or Revised Edition, right? Right. Um, and our stuff is all based upon the original Cypher System rules. But yeah, a lot of it was just tweaking it to make sure that we had the right uh, classes that we wanted, right? Um, uh, to basically tweak it to the flavor of that world. But you know, the neat thing about the Cypher System is it's really built for tinkering like that, right? It's built to be a multi-genre system. Um, and fortunately, they had not done anything in the realm of fantasy at the time. So when we licensed it from them, we're like, oh, then we get to do the fantasy stuff. We'll be breaking right. the ground with this. And if somebody wants to do fantasy stuff with Cypher System, they should look at our stuff as a model for how they want to go ahead and do that. Um, and I, I think it worked out pretty well. The neat thing for the one thing for us that was interesting is that the Cypher System has its own uh, sub economy for trinkets, what they call ciphers, uh, yes. in, in their game. And we did not have that in Shotguns and Sorcery when we started. So we ended up having to build that into the game. But that was kind of interesting because, you know, it, it wasn't that much of a leap to go from you have uh, your traditional adventuring thing where you're going out and looking for magic items to let's just make these magic items uh, easily available and uh, consumable and uh, things that you want to use as opposed to things that you might hoard. Yeah, and I think the idea is that they're consumable. They're usually like a one shot, but you're also you reward the players by saying use these up i keep giving you more exactly so that and then in those and those whatever you get those ciphers are are things that allow for interesting and creative ways of dealing with situations exactly and especially if you're i don't know if you've ever played numenera i have i have yeah i actually did play a jenkin one so yeah so you get a cipher that just does something just crazy where you'd be like well this would break any other game but it's like well you only get to do this once exactly Right. And you're encouraged to use it as opposed to saying, I need to save it for the big bad, you know, yes. episodes from now or whatever. Right. Uh, or you might have like a thing you carry around, you throw it down, and all of a sudden it becomes a large concrete habitat. Exactly. Like, uh, okay, that could be interesting. You could use it for a barrier, or you could reward an NPC with a home. I mean, it's like, you know, it, that's what I think allows for that. And I think, you know, I've not read Shotguns and Sorcerers yet, but uh, some of the things about picking up. But I mean, the idea is that those cybers can just kind of also be metaphorical rather than physical. Exactly. So it could just be a, you know, whatever may be a little bit of a luck for this and a little bit of something for that, but uh, it doesn't have to be a, a particular magic item. So, so it, so it sounded like you had a really good team to, to put that all together. Um, and that the cyber system definitely allows for a lot of that flexibility. So is the is the shotguns and sorcery intended to be solving mysteries? I mean, what's the core activities, would you say, f- for the system? Well, uh, solving mysteries is part of it. Um, but there's also you can do traditional adventuring outside of the city. The city is uh, something where the city is actually the main setting for the whole game, right? It's in this, set in this place called Dragon City, which uh, is surrounded by undead monsters 
zombies that have basically taken over the entire rest of the uh, of the city or the uh, entire rest of the continent uh, under the rulership of, uh, under the leadership of the ruler of the dead, right? And um, the uh, hold on one second. I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. Can you give me just one second? I'll come right back. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Take right. your time. Hold on. Hey, kids. Sorry, Shelby showed up with uh, grocery deliveries for my mother-in-law, and I'm like, and the kids were supposed to answer the phone and or the door and didn't. So I'm like, ah. <laughs> of course. I'm like, why am I getting all these texts? Oh, that's <laughs> why. Because my kids are got all the, you know, they they're just sitting there with their headphones on and don't hear anything. I'm like. Uh, guys, get to the door. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it, it, it's it's kind of funny. That there's a certain amount of awareness sometimes it doesn't occur till people are older as well. Well, yeah, part of it is we weren't expecting the delivery, so it's like all of a sudden the doorbell oh. rings. Nobody, everybody's like, "Well, Dad will get that because I got a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got a doorbell camera. I can look and say, oh, there, that's who that is.' But usually, not when I'm in the middle of a podcast. I'm like, yeah, I have kids that were like, the phone would ring, uh, whatever. I'm like. I like answer. Why don't you answer the phone? Well, it's probably not for me. I'm like, well, just answer the phone. Exactly. It's like, uh, <laughs> anyhow, you were asking about Dragon City. Dragon City yeah. is uh, the setting for shotguns and sorcery. It's this place where, like, 500 years ago or whatever it is, um, uh, this horde of undead comes, sweeps across the continent, and the free peoples are racing ahead of it, unable to defeat it, right? They, essentially, it's like what would have happened if uh, if the dawn of the dead happened to the Lord of the Rings, right? So uh, they all go off to the mountain. They and the the free peoples, the elves, the dwarves, whoever, cut a deal with the dragon that lives in the mountain, and they say, if you will protect us, you know, from the zombie horde, long enough for us to put a wall up here, we'll build a city here. We can basically survive in this area, right? And the dragon says, yeah, I can do that, provided you make me your emperor, right? So uh, he is now the dragon emperor ruling over Dragon City. And uh, it's under this huge wall that protects people from uh, the ravenous horde of zombies out uh, on the outside edge of it. And inside of it, they have all the peoples that are, are all the living people in the continents, right? At the top, you have the dragon emperor. Just below that, you have the elves that live in the elven reaches. Then below that, you have the stronghold where the dwarves live. Below that, you have Gnome Town, then the borough where the, the halflings live. And then below that is the village where the humans live. And below that, you have Goblin Town, where all the orcs and goblins and trolls and whoever managed to survive live in the worst, slummiest part of the city, right? And it's right up against the walls where you can still hear the zombies moaning and scratching every night. So... Uh, so basically, it's this hard-boiled detective version of L.A. laid on top of uh, uh, your fantasy mountain, right? Um, and it's all about, it's literally about social class by longevity and, and uh, institutional wealth, right? So the elves are at the top and the, uh, the goblins are at the bottom, the orcs are at the bottom. And it's literally laid out uh, uh, geographically like that. So 
uh, and you, of course, are one of these people, right? You come in and you're, uh, you're a human or you're an orc or you're an elf or dwarf or whatever, and you have to try to make your way making a living in the city, going out and solving mysteries and having adventures. But then you could also decide to go plunder all the uh, untouched places up beyond the wall, right? So Max Gibson, who's the hero in the stories, is actually an ex-adventurer who, uh, who had a, uh, this uh, diverse group of people that he went and adventured with in his old days, up until his best friend, the dwarf, uh, was, was killed in his last adventure and that broke the entire thing, right? So now he lives inside there and he's a freelance adventurer or investigator inside the city walls. But you as a player can do that kind of stuff. You can investigate you know, down these dark streets, somebody must, an honest man must walk kind of thing. Uh, honest person must walk. Uh, and, uh, or you could go and grab your group of people and you go plunder the, uh, go be a grave robber essentially outside of the, the city walls and go, everything outside of that is now this crazy dungeon because it's all been taken over by undead. And while you're out there, you have to worry about the ruler of the dead. Uh, during the day, the zombies are kind of passive and you can wander around, but as soon as night falls, everything goes to shit. Right? Okay. So, um, and you know, obviously it's illegal to do this. So if you wander beyond the city walls, uh, you have to figure out a way to get there and do that safely without being shot at by the city guard as they're uh, trying to prevent people from doing these things. And will they welcome you back in or will you be tossed in jail as soon as you show up? So you have to figure out how to get in and out. Um, so there's a lot of fun adventure opportunities there for uh, industrious people who are down on their luck and need something better than a day job <laughs> to, to uh, right. figure out their way through the world. Well, I think especially people in the lower tiers, there is no, there is no climbing out probably. Is that kind of the No, exactly. I mean, yeah, that, that's part of it. I mean, part of it is there's literally institutional racism keeping people down, right? Uh, and there's actually a section in the game talking about what this means and what it's a metaphor for and how you, how your choice in your own private home game, obviously, is how much you want to deal with that or not. You don't have to if you're not right. into confronting these kinds of issues. But if you want to, it's there. And it's certainly part of the background. I think part of the thing is that people don't even realize that in real life, there's this institutional racism in the background. And whether you're benefiting from it or you're being ground underneath it, it's part of the world, right? And that's brought into this. Um, and again, if you're a person of privilege, you can walk away and, and play your game without dealing with any of that, right? If you're not, you have to focus on what does it mean to be an orc in all this? What does it mean to live in Goblin Town? And uh, what 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 kind of things can you manage to pull off if you don't if you don't have those opportunities? And also, then you know, if in a fantasy world, because you want to you know take big chances with things, what can you maybe try to do or get away with if you're not part of the ruling class, right? If you're not an elf, right? And can you find elves who are willing to help you out with this kind of thing? Um, and you know. Uh, the people of the village are racially diverse as far as you know skin types and colors and whatever go. Um, but in a world where there, it goes between elves and goblins, that means a lot less as far as uh, you know prejudices go. You know, there's other there are other bigger differences for people to be concerned about. So. Right. That's, I guess that allows you to kind of play to those without having to just deal with it. Some people, you know, and probably some people who actually, you know, um, you know, people of color and various things, they may not just want to deal with that no, either. Yeah, you know, no, it's in no, life. No, you're pride of game. You do whatever the hell you want, right? I'm not. But but I think at least you can. You you've separated it out, so it's not a direct correlation. It's it's you in that where therefore it's not quite so personal or quite so. Well, 
I think that's one of the things about fantasy and science fiction, uh, fantastic literature in general, is allows you to hopefully, and it's not going to be for everybody, obviously, but for hopefully an every issue, hopefully you, it allows you to uh, look through the lens of these of this genre fiction to provide you with some distance, right? So a topic that would be maybe toxic to you, uh, especially if you're, you know, white male cishet guy like me might be toxic. You know, some of my more conservative friends might not be willing to look at those kind of issues. But in a game, they can experience those things and maybe get a better taste for that and maybe think, discuss them in a way that's safe for them to discuss or for anybody yeah. to discuss without hitting the, the hammer too hard and hitting the nail too hard on the head, right? Being too hard on the nose with it. So uh, I, that's one of the great things about fiction and games in general, role-playing games in general, is allows you to explore these spaces in ways that uh, gives you that um, that narrative distance, right? Um, that you wouldn't normally be able to talk about uh, directly with people. But because it's a, a fun activity, you can actually have conversations with people that and or, or explore those ideas that uh, uh, maybe open things up for you at a, and maybe can help make you more empathic to people about that. Right. And whether or not I succeeded, sense. you know, again, I'm a straight white dude, so it's, uh, I am part of the problem, so to speak, and I'm trying to just branch that out so that people uh, can have these kind of conversations. And I try to welcome in people of all different types so that they can play these games, make their own games, play with these kind of things, and do whatever the hell they want to. And if you just want to play a regular game, a quote-unquote regular game, and do your own thing, more power to you. If you want to play something that's more politically charged, more power to you. I mean, my Brave New World game was essentially a game that was about uh, what kind of rights were you willing to give up in order to feel safe? And that came out in 1999. And uh, that would have been a very difficult game to produce in 2001 after 9-11, right? Right. But uh, it was certainly the kind of conversations I was interested in having pre-9-11 and post-9-11. So I've never shied away from these politically charged conversations. And I think that's where you get a lot of the interesting things in art, where, uh, you know, if, if you're going to be making art, people say, we don't want politics in my art, in my entertainment. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it's really always there. Whether or not you uh, recognize it for what it is, it's always there. You know, well, there's always Thomas Kincaid, though. Remember yeah, that. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always there. If, whether or not you're acknowledging that it's there is it's the real thing, right? So it's, uh, and, uh, I, if I'm going to write this kind of stuff and talk about things, I want to talk about things that matter to me. So. And hopefully to other people, too. So I think you're pretty close to having everything fulfilled for the for the uh, cipher system so what's left for the cipher system fulfill uh, like i said i believe it's the comic book the adventure the pathfinder conversion and oh there's an art book that's supposed to come out with it too right but i didn't want to do the art book until we had art for everything because anything that's good we're going to slot into the art book right, <laughs> right. um that makes sense you know so the art book is last everything else will come first and the artwork turns out to be much more work than you think it's going to be because you're like, oh, we'll just put a bunch of pictures in a book. What the hell's the problem? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you need to have context for that. You know, why is this a uh, why is this pretty piece of artwork? What does that mean in the world setting? Why is this important? You know, and it doesn't have to be. I don't have to write a treatise in every one of them, but I have to write at least a paragraph saying this is what this is. This is what this is. This is why this fits. This is this is an early development of this character. That kind of a thing. So. Right. That makes sense. I mean, the, the artwork that I've seen so far, I mean, obviously, especially the covers, is, you know, it's absolutely, it's absolutely stunning. So. Thank you. Yeah, I think Jeremy did a great job of it. It was one of the reasons oh, yeah. I to work with him on it. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also just illustrates too. It's just like, 
you know, <clears throat> you know, you know, as much as we would like to think that a lot of these companies are like almost like corporations, it's just a person or two, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, they are. And then when so I, I actually run all my freelancing through a corporation, right? That I set up for myself for yeah. purposes and to make bookkeeping easier, right? But yeah, I mean, if you get sick, yeah, that's it, right? nobody's writing for you at that point, exactly. right? No, it's in the gaming industry, there's like, Maybe well, if, when you if you, in the role playing game industry for sure, there's like basically two companies that are big enough that they could weather a storm like that, right? It's Paizo and and uh, Wizards of the Coast. Other than that, everything else is fairly small. I mean, you're talking, oh yeah, you know, you could fit the entire uh, company in in uh, uh, in a small pizza joint, you know, around a table most of the time. Um, in, in smaller companies, it's usually just one person who or two people who are hiring out freelancers. To do stuff they, they either can't do or don't know how to do or they don't have the time to do so it's uh it's all small press right um you know even when you get up to board game companies most of them are fairly small operations right uh, it's just yeah. not that large a group of people well and i think the thing is is like you know you know when we fund uh we, we put money towards a kickstarter i think it's easy to kind of think of as just a means of just like an early order right but sometimes it's just it's a small company trying to make this thing happen and there sometimes isn't a plan b no exactly you know some companies some of the bigger companies actually use kickstarter as a pre-order system right? i mean like uh cmon cool mini or not they do some amazing games and amazing kickstarters but you know that it, you know, they're at the point now where if they didn't have kickstarter they would still be producing those games right that's right. um, basically a pre-order system for them. And I don't blame them for using it that way. People, uh, the thing I've seen kill more gaming companies than anything else is inventory management, right? Because it's oh, yeah. impossible to know how many copies of something you're going to sell. And let's say the market for a game is 7,000 copies, right? But you don't know that. Uh, so you kind of take a shot in the dark. Before Kickstarter, you would maybe print 3,000 and then another 3,000 and another 3,000 until you ran out. Uh, with Kickstarter, you could say, well, we sold 5,000 on Kickstarter. Maybe we'll sell another 1,000 or 2,000 in the trade. Um, but this lets you have a good idea what it's going to be. Because before, again, you would, uh, let's say that market's 7,000 copies. You sell that first 3,000 copies. You go back to press for another 3,000 copies. Then you go back to press for another 3,000. The problem is that that last print run you did, and you now got 2,000 copies you're never going to sell, right? You can try to sell them over time because eventually you'll sell them. But within a reasonable amount of time, those that those extra 2000 copies ate up every bit of profit you had for that game line, right? And then suddenly you're sitting with just crap in a warehouse that's never gonna move. I've seen companies yeah. like Game Fair Games, uh, uh, West End Games, Iron Crown Games, all these companies folded because they had warehouses full of unsellable stuff when they left, right? And the thing is, is like, if you just say you print like 5,000 copies, you may need to sell like, 3,000 copies before you start making money. Exactly, just the break even point, right? So, but you've already paid your artists, you paid your editors, you paid all these people, and you still haven't made any money yet. And like exactly. actual cash flowing to a profit. So, I mean, that's also detrimental is, you know, before you'd have to come up with all this cash up front. Yep, and you gotta mortgage your house or your retirement account or get friends and family. And, you know, uh, like, let's say you borrow money from your parents and you fuck it up. You're not allowed it back for Thanksgiving, right? It, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, this can be detrimental, right? 
Um, yeah, and I, I, it just—I don't think people realize, you know, you know, they think, oh, they're such and such size company, they should just put this out there. But there is so much risk with inventory and with having to come up with cash up front, and how ca- you can be very successful, hugely successful. But if your cash flow becomes out of whack, yeah, you, you, you're going down, right? Yeah, no, it happens more often than you like to think. And what people don't get uh, that aren't in the industry and don't know printing is that uh, if you're doing traditional printing. The most expensive parts of, of doing printing are turning on the press and turning off the press, right? So because of that, uh, you know, printing a thousand copies of a book might cost you ten thousand dollars, right? Printing two thousand copies might cost you fifteen thousand dollars. Printing five thousand copies might cost you only twenty thousand dollars. So your price per unit starts to go way down as you start printing more and more copies, and you're like, well, if I just can manage to sell five thousand copies, I'll make boatloads of money, right? But you don't know if that's the market. You don't know if you're going to be able to sell that many copies. And so you're being conservative. You print 2,000 copies, right? You talk yourself up to doing 2,000 copies. And you sell 2,000 copies. You're like, okay, keep going. But again, uh, you just don't know where that limit is. It's it's impossible for even large companies to know what they're doing to know what that number is, right? Even Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. Well, the thing, too, is your, your, your shipping is going to be different. So, you know, if you can ship it all at once, it's much cheaper than shipping it five different times. Exactly. Yeah. And every time you ship something, there's a risk of something going wrong. Yep. And nowadays, I mean, hell, the pandemic screwed things up because you're like, well, if you're printing overseas and you need to have the stuff shipped to you, uh, it can be forever, right? Uh, Just because not only has the pandemic screwed up, but then obviously the post office got screwed with. All that stuff that's going with the post office now actually screws small businesses for shipping things to the customers, right? Yeah. Um, things take longer. Media mail is less trustworthy. Um, and that's another thing people don't get is that media mail is only for books, right? Books, yes. CDs and, and DVDs and stuff. So if you include something in a box set like a die or a pawn or a miniature, you can't use media mail anymore. Suddenly, or, it be, it be, uh, the, yeah, or even or even like, you know, if like somebody said, if they pull, if they have a zine, but the cover isn't attached. Yes. <laughs> it, it gets crazy, right? Um, so it, it, a lot of these things are just inside baseball that nobody at the retail level needs to, or the consumer level needs to care about. They just want to be able to put their money down for a game and make sure they're going to get it. But that's one of the reasons you use Kickstarter for a lot of this stuff is because you don't know what the number is going to be. You just know how many copies you need to sell to break even, right? And if you can hit that number on Kickstarter, then you'll go ahead and do the game. The trouble then becomes that uh, yeah, Kickstarter does this right up front. They put warnings all over everything. And they say, look, guys, Kickstarter is not a store. Even if some big companies will use it as a store, smaller publishers have a lot more risks because, again, if that person dies, you know, the person who's running this, is this ever going to happen? Probably not. You know, I have friends who actually literally died before they could fulfill a Kickstarter, right? Okay. And whether or not that ever happens, it will be up to their heirs. Right to actually finish it out, and probably not. Right, maybe no. the heirs will sell it to somebody else who will take it on. I have people I've seen where they ran Kickstarters and they just could not fulfill it, and they declared bankruptcy and and said, "I'm sorry, you know, what am I going to do?" Then there are sometimes scam artists out there, right, uh, who will say, "I'm going to run a Kickstarter," and then before that one's fulfilled, they'll run three other Kickstarters, and they never fulfill any of them, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons when people talk about Kickstarter, I talk about it as a trust economy. Right, it's it really should be based on trust. So, for instance, a large company that doesn't need your money, you could trust them because you know they don't need your money. Right, they, right. they're going to do us either way. Small publisher, small business, uh, if they need your money, 
and they might screw it up for whatever reason. And because of that, you have to decide whether or not you trust that person, that those individual people behind that company to actually produce that. And that's one of the reasons when I was able to do these Kickstarters for 12 for 12, it was because people trusted me because I had already published a couple dozen novels by that point. You know, I had written stuff for a lot of people. I had self-published uh, games and such. People trusted me to be able to finish that, right? And even when things go bad, that's one of the reasons I take that level of trust extremely seriously. And I'm dedicated to making sure that stuff comes out because if you can't trust me to come out with it, I don't see how you can trust me to do the next one. Right. right. And uh, so that's the reason I take that stuff so seriously. And, you know, when I'm backing Kickstarter, if you look at me on Kickstarter, you'll see that I've back, I'm a super backer. I've backed like something like three or 400 different projects. Right. Um, and, you know, when I'm looking at it, even if it's, if it's a friend that I know is not going to be, you know, be able to fund, I'm like, you know, I'm going to throw in some money just to offer support. Uh, it's not going to fund, but I'm going to throw in my money anyway, just to show people that I care about this. Uh, and if it doesn't, if it funds and they fuck it up, excuse my language, if they screw it up, I will say, uh, you know, I understand. I've had companies that I've been working with go bankrupt on me, right, as an individual freelancer and screw yeah. me on the money. It's the only way I lose money because I'm really tenacious about getting paid. Um, but if they go bankrupt, I've had a friend's company went bankrupt and they turn to me, you know, tears in their eyes and say, man, I, I, I wish this had been done better. I'm like, yeah, I know you did. It's not your, it's not your fault, right? You did the best you could. Things didn't work out. That's why we have bankruptcy laws in this country, right? And I think they should be more lenient, to be honest with you. I think that uh, if somebody screwed this up and they can't do it, you shouldn't hold it against them for the rest of their life. I'm like, well, I exposed myself financially to the limit to which I was willing to do that. And if it doesn't work out, you know, uh, I have that built into my budget to not have that destroy my life as well. Well, and I, I think also for myself, I'm going through my first Kickstarter, uh, the Zine Quest. So it's like, there's so many unknowns as far as going into that. It's hard. I mean, I don't think you really know until you've been through it exactly all the different, like, like somebody just told me that, uh, you know, when you pay your percentage to Kickstarter, they also count your, um, your shipping towards your funding goal. And they also charge it to well, 10% it depends on top of that. It, but yeah, they can, right? Like some people will do a, uh, they'll use a sh uh, pledge manager, like uh, uh, what the, there's so many different pledge managers now. I think one of them. Yeah, well, I want to call pledge manager. Right. So. so if you use a pledge manager, you can actually say, we will charge shipping to you after the Kickstarter funds, right? Uh, and a lot of times you say that because shipping rates change, right? Shipping rates can be hard to calculate because you're in a different country. This guy's in a different country, whatever. It gets really crazy. Um, so sometimes you can say, we're going to do this after the ship, after it funds, and uh, we're not going to include your shipping in your pledge. And then that money is free of Kickstarter charges, right? Any money you get outside of Kickstarter is free of Kickstarter charges. However, the pledge manager will probably charge you a percentage. Uh, depending on how they're doing stuff. And certainly your credit card processing company is going to charge you a percentage no matter what. Like when Kickstarter does your stuff, they charge you the credit card processing fee plus 5%, right? Whatever that happens to be. And that can be anywhere. It usually ranges out from uh, eight to 10%, depending on the volume of what you're doing. Um, but you're right. If you get that shipping money done through there, you should budget that when you're doing it. You should budget everything you're doing with that 10% edge on top of that. Yeah, but I think what the what the twist is is like if you say you know what this Kickstarter needs a thousand dollars to be to properly fund, but you're not thinking that shipping is going towards that funding. Yeah, 
Well, you should. Right? I, yeah, because who in the right minds thinks that you're going to add shipping to your to the pledge? It's, I mean, that to me is so from from Kickstarter side. I, I don't necessarily hold it against them for charging a percentage of that. I mean, that's still kind of rotten, but still it is what it is. But it is very if you have something that is high on the on the shipping charges. That could and you're not saying that's going to count towards my pledge. The shipping is oh. that could flip you upside down quickly. Well, that's what the reason when you do these kind of things, you need to come up with a budget that covers all of the costs that you have, right? And whether that's printing, shipping, hiring a freelancer for artwork, right. editing, whatever, you need to hire a layout artist, all this kind of stuff, that should all go into your budget, right? And it shouldn't be just what do I need to do to produce this material? It's what do I need to deliver this material to the consumer, right? Yeah. And uh, and you're right. I mean, there's there are a lot of costs in that. If you're starting out, you just don't you're not even aware of, right? And for instance, if you then uh, want to go into retail, right, uh, which I don't always recommend, especially for smaller projects. If you want to go into retail, uh, a lot of people don't even know how the three tier system works for retail and gaming. So, for instance, if I if I have a publishing company, I want to have my stuff sold in stores. Generally speaking, I need to go through a distributor, not through not selling directly to stores, right? Right. And that distributor, the store will only pay fifty uh, percent of the retail cost of a book. So let's say the, the book costs hundred dollars, just for an easy round number. That means the store is paying fifty dollars for that book, right? And a distributor will only pay forty percent, or they're going to ask for sixty percent off discounts. So they're paying forty percent, so they're going to give you as the publisher. 40 bucks out of that $100 book. So it sells to the consumer $100 at retail. The retailer pays the distributor 50 bucks. The distributor turns around and pays you 40 bucks. They get $10, the, the retailer gets $50 and you as the producer get $40, right? That's roughly how it breaks down. Um, and if you don't know that going into it, you could say, well, I, I made this book. It cost me, you know, my cost of goods sold was uh, 40 bucks on this book, right? I'm going to sell it for hundred bucks. You just eliminated every amount of profit you're going to make. Yeah. That, right. Literally you cannot turn a profit on that book. Cause that's literally what you're going to get from the distributor. The only amount of money you can ever make off that book is anything you sell directly to a store, which will give you $10 essentially uh, profit and a consumer, which will give you $60 profit on those books. But if your cost of goods sold is that much, you are screwed. I literally had a comp, uh, I was doing uh, uh, consulting for uh uh, Tag, Chicago Toy and Game Fair. And I was one of the experts there. And so this family came and said, look, we have this board game we made all about dinosaurs and it, we're selling it for $50 of retail and it costs us $40 to make. I'm like, oh my God, you have just destroyed yourself. You already paid for these games. They're already in your, in your uh, garage and you can't sell these at retail for that price. You need to sell these for $100 and nobody's going to buy that for $100, right? Part of your job as a publisher is to figure out what can I get for this game and how can I produce this at a rate that will actually turn me a profit, right? And a lot of times the answer is you can't. You wanna make this game as brilliant, beautiful, takes all these stuff in there, has these great components, everything else, uh, is leather bound with gold gilt pages and ribbons yeah. to go through or whatever. And you look at the cost in that and you're like, well, I can't sell that at retail, it's impossible. However, sometimes you can sell it on Kickstarter directly to the consumer, and not worry about the retail people. Yep. Right? But again, these are things you need to know about before you get into this, because if you then think you're going to be able to turn around and sell at retail, you are absolutely wrong. It will not work, right? And that's why 
honestly, if you're going to start out publishing, I say, you know, either publish something self-publishing in small late where you can screw things up and make your mistakes and learn everything, whatever, or publish something through a publisher and ask boatloads of questions as you go so you can learn all this stuff and know what you're getting into before you ruin your finances by screwing up. Okay. <laughs> That's good advice. Because it, it, it's very painful. And learn on somebody else's dime if you do. <laughs> That's what yeah, that's what I heard. So we said the best mistakes to learn from or somebody else's. Yeah, well, we were talking in the last conversation about how, you know, how do you do this stuff and how do you break in? Again, if you can learn on somebody else's dime, which is how I did it, do that, right? By the time I started Pinnacle with Shane Hensley, I knew all this stuff, right? I knew all the three, how the three-year distribution system worked. I could literally walk into any distributor in the country and uh, say, this is actually what we did at uh, the Gamma Trade Show in 1996. I walked around with a Deadlands flyer that was a black and white photocopied flyer and said, this is what we're doing. How many copies do you want? And they said, Matt, we know you. We've talked to you for years in different companies. We know you'll produce this. This is how many we want, right? And I knew exactly how it all works. So I knew how much money I was gonna get from them. I knew what the terms were that we would be able to give them. And, uh, and because of that, we were head and shoulders above other people starting out who didn't have any of those ideas, right? Right. So, um, Learn that stuff, do your research ahead of time because it's really easy to lose your shirt uh, otherwise. So tricky stuff. <laughs> and I think the thing is, I mean, we're kind of like, it does appear, I mean, looking at numbers and different things, like it is a nice edge, right? I mean, you are at best probably gonna make some money, but it's real easy to, for that to cut the other side and all of a sudden you're losing money. It's yeah. not like- Well, for instance, when I'm doing shotguns and sorcery right now, uh, Jeremy did a print run for it and he sold the print run. Uh, there was like maybe 150 books left over at the end of it, right? Because also the other thing you learn when you're working with printers is there's always an over and under about 10%. So you need to actually, if you want to fulfill a Kickstarter, you can't have them go under. You need to tell them you want more than you need just in case the right. comes under through damage or whatever else. Because, you know, 10 people are not going to say, oh, yeah, don't worry about me. They're going to say, where's my book, right? Uh, so you need to uh, do the, those print runs over and you'll end up uh, screwing yourself that way. When I did the, this thing, when I took it over, I didn't have a stock. So I just said, you know what? I'm not going to run another Kickstarter to make stock. I'm not going to sell this through retail, right? I'm only going to do print on demand and uh, PDFs for the rest of this line, right? Print on demand is nice because the price is fixed here for each copy. I know what the shipping is and the yeah. consumer's paying the shipping. And then I make whatever profit I want to make after that, right? And the question is, can you make the print-on-demand copies cheap enough that they're still in the ballpark that anybody wants to pay that amount of money, right? So, uh, you know, nobody wants to pay $1,000 for a copy of Shotguns and Sorcery, right? But they might, and some of them might pay 100 bucks. Some of them might pay 50 bucks. My retail price was 60 bucks, right? Um, because again, you know, I need to pay the printer for the print-on-demand copies. And uh, I need to be able to turn a profit on that as well. So that's how it works out. On the other hand, every time you buy a print-on-demand copy, I also throw in the PDF for free. Because you know how much it costs me to produce another PDF? Nothing. $0.0. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautiful thing. I, I think that the print-on-demand has gotten better. And I think it definitely makes uh, a huge difference as far as for publishers to be able to, customers that want it, they can have it. And you can just say, you know what? You buy the PDF, you can, my, my print copies is going to be at, you know, at cost. I'm not trying to make any more money. And exactly. You know, Although even at, can, at cost, again, you should make some money on that, right? Uh, there's right. no reason to, to sell at cost because 
Uh, now, if they back you, like for instance, sometimes they'll back you at a certain level and you give them a code to get the cost from the from the printer. Yeah. People do that with drive-through uh, RPG, right? And that's okay because your profit then is literally the amount they're pledging to you to get that code, right? Uh, but you know, when you do work for people, you deserve to make a profit. Now, the question is how much profit you make. And they, the other thing people screw up is they say, well, if I if I can do it for this amount of money, I should only charge this amount of money because that seems like a reasonable amount of profit. It's like, no, no, uh, you should charge what the market bears. These are not yes. commodities you're selling. You're not selling people food and water, right? You're selling them entertainment. So if the going price for something like this is 60 bucks, charge them 60 bucks. If the going price is a hundred bucks, charge them a hundred bucks, even if you can. Yeah, and I, I think it's true, especially for what you're doing as far as being at a very um, high level professional and having all that. But I think, but as far as like me just throwing out the first couple things, it's like, yeah. it, it doesn't hurt me to say, you know what, it's just. When you're starting you know, out trying to make a name for yourself and nobody knows you and you want to sell them things, Price is a lever, right? But I don't right. think it should be the kind of thing where, especially once you establish yourself, you shouldn't be racing to the bottom with price. Because no. the trick is when I produce a shotguns and sorcery project or one of my other products, uh, nobody else is producing a shotguns and sorcery project, right? Yep. People are paying for my unique talent and viewpoint and my my skills. And they've learned to trust those over the years. So they're willing to pay a little bit more to make sure they get something of solid quality that they believe in. Um, and you know, once you've established that kind of stuff, you shouldn't sell yourself short on it. You should actually start charging the right amount of money. But if I was starting out, yeah, I'd probably, and honestly, for some of my stuff, like uh, I'll toss out short stories for free or a novel for free for a while or whatever and say, yeah, people who don't know this, let's make the entry easily. Uh, we were doing marketing for trading card games back in the 90s. We used to call that crack marketing, right? The first one is free. After that, yeah. you have to pay, right? Because once you get a taste, you're going to want more. That's maybe yeah, I think the thing too is if you if if you do it too cheap, obviously you're you're also devaluing your work. Exactly. Plus, honestly, if you value the work properly, then you get to make more of it, right? Right. Now you were talking in the last conversation about how you get to go full time or whatever. If you value your work properly, the chances you've able to go full time or devote more time to this go way up, right? Whereas if you charge just over what you need to get this stuff at any point. You're making hobby prices. This will never be more than a hobby for you personally, because you will never be able to devote more than your free time to it. Right. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm not against people who do it for a hobby, but if you want to be able to devote full-time professional time to something like this, you need to start charging more money. Yeah, and I think the thing is, it's easy to, you know, you know, from my vantage point, um, it's just me. So it's, sure. it's, I don't. I'm not a writer, but I'm writing. I'm not a layout person. I'm doing layout. I'm not, I mean, you're writer, all these things. If you're a writer. You're, if you're doing writing, you're a writer. Right? Yeah, but I mean, it's like, it's, it's tough. It is really tough. I mean, just, I mean, it's like, but I think once you start making, like, if you're just consuming, you really have no idea the amount of energy it takes just to produce something simple. You know, yeah, even exactly. if it's a 10 page book with some art and I mean, it's, you think, oh, it's just some writing or, oh, it's just some layout. Well, it takes some serious time to put out a layout that looks, at least when you're new to this, to looks decent. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're learning like crazy, right? That's part of the trick. And, uh, yeah. you know, and people, don't, I mean, the first time you do something, it's even harder because you don't know what yeah. you don't know, right? I, at my stage, I, I know all the stuff that I need to do. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is still hard, right? 
Yeah. Um, on the other hand, that's one of the bits that allows things to surprise you out of nowhere from fresh people, fresh faces, is because they don't know better. Right? They don't yeah. know that they shouldn't try that crazy idea. They think, well, let's give it a shot. And you know what? Nine times out of 10, they're going to fall flat on their faces. But man, that 10th time, or maybe that 100th time or whatever, it's going to be something magical that could start something entirely new. I mean, when Peter Axinson did uh, Magic the Gathering, for instance, he started out as a guy who was basically doing gaming supplements for role-playing games, right? He did the Primal Order, which he was getting his ass sued off yeah. for by every company in the industry uh, because they were very much on trying to protect their IP for people doing third-party, whatever. It was crazy stuff. That's a whole nother conversation. But while he was doing that, uh, Richard Garfield came to him with these ideas for games. And Peter's like, can you come up with a card game you can play in a line and whatever? And Richard comes back with Magic Gathering. <laughs> and, you're, and Peter, to his credit, said, holy cow, that's a great idea. And probably knew enough about the gaming industry to know how to get it in production, but didn't realize how crazy it was possibly going to be. Nobody could have. I remember Peter literally standing next to me at Origins. He came, the game came out of Gen Con 92, I think, something like that. I remember standing next to me at Origins with uncut sheets of Magic the Gathering going, what do you think, Matt? How are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know, Pete. How do you think you're going to go? Um, and we had no idea. You know, but we knew at Gen Con when the thing sold out like crazy and he handed me a, a box. Uh, I'm like, holy cow, this is, you know, people are like, I'll give you whatever for that. I'm like, I think I'll take this home with me. <laughs> <laughs> so you just don't know. It's those fresh ideas that managed to pull it off. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, but I think the thing is, is it's, uh, it, it does help doing all these things to spark and to, and to create, but, but, um, but, you know, but the amount of time, and if it doesn't take time, the amount of expertise it took to get to that point, uh, there's a large cost to be paid. So when you're when you're buying something for just a couple bucks off a drive-through, you, you don't also realize just the well, amount of energy it uh, took. Uh, people look at me and they're like, "You make how much an hour doing this stuff?" I'm like, "Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not the it's not it, the thing is I'm fast, right? So I don't like to charge by the hour. I prefer to charge people, computer video game companies, by the project." But sometimes you need to charge by the hour because they're like, well, we need to do this, but I'm not sure about this. We have to do more over here. Um, and the trick isn't that, uh, the trick is all the time and effort I put into making it so I could do that stuff quickly. Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. Um, and the fact is that honestly, there aren't that many people who can pull it off, right? I, I'm in a fairly niche of a niche of a niche to be able to do that kind of work. Uh, you know, when uh, somebody called, like Biomutant was a game I was announced that I'm working on. Uh, and when my friend Stefan uh, Lundquist, who was one of the guys I worked with at Target Games in Sweden, which I was all, mostly a bunch of guys who had worked at Games Workshop and other companies before that, um, you know, and Stefan calls me up and says, I need somebody to help me with this right now, and he, I'll pay you this much. I'm like, he knows I can jump in feet first and make that happen. Right. And if he calls other people, he, does, he doesn't know. He's like, well, I don't know if you can do it. And, I don't, and also, over the years, he developed a bit of a shorthand. He's like, I need you to do this. And I can't tell you enough because I don't have the time to train you on this. Can you figure it out? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but we'll give it a shot. And I figure it out because <laughs> I know him and I, right. I, I can read his shorthand essentially and go, I think this is where you're going. He's, oh God, thank God you figured it out. So, <laughs> but even that, right. like, I don't know, we'll figure, we'll, go, we'll figure it as we go. So. Yeah, really. I mean, as, as I do some uh, uh, freelance commercial photography, it's just I see myself as you're just there to solve problems. Oh, exactly. Right. You and know, if there's no problems. They don't need you. And, yeah, exactly. And they don't even know the problems are going to come up. Right. That's part of the problem. 
Anyway, I think we're hitting the time-space continuum. You've you've uh, you've given me a, a tremendous amount of your time today. Very cool. Oh, I'm happy to chat with you. Hey, Ben, let's talk about stat blocks. All right. Why not? So I notice in the uh, I'll, I'll, uh, through Oltan's door, mm -hmm. uh, no stat blocks. Mm, there are stat. I mean, there are actually. There oh, towards the end. But a lot of it was like in paragraph. I guess you had the in paragraph uh, format. Right there. And they're very short because they're, you know, roughly on the BX model where there's not very much you need to know. And then later on there were stat blocks for the, for the creatures at the end, like the, the crazy crow and the. Uh... Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, here's, here's my um, philosophy on that. It it's, I'm broken a little, breaking a little bit with it um, in issue three, but generally my philosophy is to include the stat block whenever you would encounter uh the creature so it's on the encounter tables and if there is um someone who shows up in a area or a, a type of creature who shows up in an area i'll drop it in there too and the thought there is just ease of use at the table um it seems to me that <clears throat> the problem with the stat block is one is i mean i th i think they are absolutely the most useful thing at a table to grab in your hand to look at and be able to to work with but it takes up so much real estate yeah and it's ugly i mean yeah. the other thing to say is it's very ugly and if that's the kind of thing that bothers you <laughs> there there is a, a kind of strong urge not not to in, in, include it. I mean, it's like it. You know, it's like boiler contract boilerplate or something. You know, um, it's like if you were reading something that you, you know. It's like imagine reading a novel or a poem or something that had right. contract language in it at the end of every stanza. Um, it's it. It can be a little bit like that, but it's so useful um, that it's it's hard not to include. Yeah, I think for me, trying to, I mean, th that's what it comes down to. I think when you're designing the page for the aesthetic, I find myself designing around the stat block. I can see that. I mean, I, I don't feel like I have a great solution to this. I mean, um, I I try to put it at the end. I mean, one, one thing is I do think it's good. It, my solution, I said, who knows? I'm not being normative here, but this is what I yeah. do. I put it at the end so that it doesn't clutter up the presentation of the um, the text. Because I think it, there's also an information design problem, which is when you start having these kind of, you know, jargon-filled things breaking up the text, it gets hard to take it all in at a glance. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of like to put it at the end of the description. So <clears throat> it seems like, I've seen different ways of books and some OSR, some people do multiple columns. I, I find that once you get past one column of, of a stat block, if it's like two or three columns, it starts becoming much more confusing. Yeah. I'm and, yeah. 
for sure. Oh, go ahead. No, that's it. I agree. I mean, yeah. So I guess the thing too is, you know, designing around, you know, I think there's also sometimes some information you need immediately. And there's some information that you really don't like, you may not need number appearing to be immediate, but you definitely need like armor class and damage to be immediate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting what goes in a stat block. It sort of shows what the game thinks is the information that you need. So, for example, does morale go in a stat block? You know, um, or um, or just think about the density of the 5e stat block. And even though it's not by far not the most complicated version of Dungeons right. & Dragons, it... Um, it's sufficiently complicated that you can just see in order to run a combat, you, you know, you need to have all of this machinery present. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing is also, you know, going back, you saying which order and what's most important is <clears throat> creating the hierarchy. Cause I think if you could find a way of easy visualizing, but I'm afraid to do that, you're, it, I don't know. It's it's it's. I think a very difficult hurdle to to actually go past a certain amount of information and still make it look good and make it usable. Yeah, I, I think when in the in older versions of D and think where this really where stat blocks really stumble in my experience um, is. There, well, there's something that's missing from most stat blocks that I would love to figure out a way to incorporate. Which, it, and then there's um, something that is, I think, hard to unpack in a stat block. So the thing I would love to incorporate, um, if I were writing, if I were kind of designing the system, and then, you know, reaction roles. And what happens if you, so I love the classic reaction rolls where you roll 2d6 and uh, depending on what you roll, the creature reacts in a different way. Right. And that, that's one thing that made the game much less fight, makes the game much less fighty and pushes you more towards a kind of faction-based play where um, it's much more about how you interact with people and, and where you get attacked is if you get surprised. But if you otherwise, you kind of come up against, you know, things that may feel all different kinds of ways, be doing all different kinds of things and interact with you in different ways. But of course, you know, it's always highly impressionistic because, you know, a troll, you know, it means a different thing for a troll if you roll an eight than if, you know, you're, you're interacting with an elf. Um, and it'll mean a different thing still if it's, you know, like a, an animal or something right and so i would love to figure out a way in a stat block to say you know what's going on to to do for reaction roles what you can do for morale with just having that number there um because i i, I think that that that's information that i would love to have to run but i don't know how to do that i don't know how to um incorporate the that information so that's something i would love to put in a stat block and then the thing that I think is hard in the older editions is that often there are powers that creatures have, and you you know you can't really unpack that in a stat block. You kind of need to, you know, like Five E has a whole apparatus. You know, there's like you just include right. it in the stat block, and there's this whole apparatus. 
But in older editions, they'll just be all these powers monsters have, and they would get explained in the monster manual or whatever. And they'll just be like a little words, comma, comma, comma. And maybe you'll know because they're like a spell effect or something. But right. Um, and I think, you know, it's not such a problem in practice, but it is a, a little inelegant. So th those are some things I struggle with with stat blocks. So do you find <clears throat> that there's any product that you think does it really well? I mean, I think older editions all basically do pretty well with it. I mean, I think that's the charm of part of the charm of older editions is that you can just do for low, low to mid level, you can just do two, three line stat blocks and it's not a problem. I mean, it's true. If you're playing AD&D um, and you're getting into the mid to high level range, then it's not so simple. It gets pretty complicated. Um, like what a devil can do or something in right. AD&D is they're a beast to run. They can do like 50 things and do a lot of them every round and all kinds of things, gate in other demons and all these at will effects and multiple attack routines and, and all kinds of stuff and can only be struck by certain things and can, you know, just do all this crazy, crazy business. But, um, but at least in the low to mid-level range, the old editions, you know, don't require that much real estate and, there was a kind of sequence, it's not the same everywhere, but that was worked out that works pretty well, where you have hit dice and AC up front and things like movement and morale later on, if the system uses morale. Um, and so I, I, you know, in a way, I don't think this is the biggest problem for older systems um, because they, it didn't, be just because there's not so much information you have to capture, so yeah. Yeah, and I guess the problem <clears throat> when you go to like spell effects and such that that also requires opening up and going to other works to understand. Absolutely, and that is a problem. You're right. You know, I haven't thought enough about this because I always run into that problem. I'm always playing dungeon mastering, and then I have to stop, yeah. and I have to open up a PDF or pick a book yeah. up, and then I can never find what I need to find quickly enough because even if I can do it when I'm not under pressure, when I am under pressure everything slows down and and it can be a real drag um so you're right that's i don't have a good solution to that have you ever played any of the monty cook games the uh, cypher system no how do they handle it how's that <clears throat> well it would be the simplest for a stat block but for whatever reason they love to get into verbosity and makes it something that you can put a creature on an index card and run it very simply, but they'll take like a half a page and just fill all sorts of information that in the end, it's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is nonsense. I don't need this. Just give me two sentences. I don't need a paragraph. And it's like, I think they had the system that's the easiest to do, but yet whenever you look through their books, it's also, it's, it's nonsense. I mean, even one of the big things is uh, GM intrusions and that's putting italics to the side. It's not even part of it. And it's just like, it seems to me like all your business ends should be up front. Everything you need to run up should be up front. <clears throat> and then whatever's after, it's just could be, you can do whatever you want afterwards. That should be your, your information text, but you know, everything you need to run that creature at that moment to me should be very concise and laid out very plainly. I, I agree. Although, mm. you, you know, um, I agree, although I also feel the pull of having more information. And let me give you an example. 
I mean, I run in my home game, I run now a kind of mid to high level. We've been playing four years and some of the players are eighth level. And we're playing basically like AD&D light. And they, um, and you know, it's sufficiently to the point where I just don't really have the cognitive processing power to run combats where the I have the other side um, acting intelligently enough in the combat. And I'm always wincing afterwards, like, oh, why did I make it so easy? They would have done this. They would have done that. Right. And the way I've, the only times where I really haven't run into that is when I made notes about what they would do in advance. Just very brief notes, but like these guys always swarm whoever's in front and right. if they have the option and they'll try to pull the guy, you, you know, whatever. Or this one, you, you know, like w with more intelligent creatures, you know, they'll target like spellcasters and do this and that. Or if they have powers, you know, first they'll, you know, try to first they'll make themselves invisible, then they'll do this, then they'll do that. And it's not like it's a it's not like you're running a video game. Um, you're it's all improvisational and they'll react to the situation and everything. But I do find that um, it, 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 it really helps to have some notes like that before I run a fight, at least when it's getting complicated. Um, and you can't really put those in a stat block, but I would love to have some technology that would let me have all that. Like maybe index cards are the answer. <laughs> maybe you just have a stat block on the front and then on the back you have like the spell powers and how they'll handle themselves. And then maybe you just print out the index cards for some adventure you're gonna run. Maybe the tech is as simple as that. And then you just pull the index card. And if you wanna flip well, it over. I think, <clears throat> I don't think there's much in a way of, I think when you go back to like um, the early editions where in general, uh, there wasn't, other than like hit dice and damage, there, I mean, that's don't they really kind of differentiated a lot of the creatures, you know, some, especially lower levels. So I think at that point, early on, there was nothing rule wise or mechanics wise to say how you should treat kobolds differently than orcs, they should treat differently than gnomes. Right. And so I don't think there's been any sort of prime. And I think that's the way we kind of, we, I mean, just, yeah. You know, in general, we just kind of would just throw monsters at at at, at players until players died or the, or the monsters died. Yeah, yeah. I'm, but that's not really that, that's not logical yeah. or reasonable or narratively responsible. Yeah, and you know, um, right. And also, yeah, I don't know. I have complicated feelings about all this. I mean, you know. I, I partly play old kind of old school games because I don't want to get into a like a tactical combat mini right. game. And I, I kind of want the players to be thinking outside the box. Um, I don't want them to always be fighting if they don't want to do that. I want them to, you know, have lots of options, but I also want them to kind of win when they do choose to engage to like win by partly by out of the box thinking and by you know, in doing things that are interesting and surprise me and, and take things in a fun direction. And, um, but on the other hand, 
like the the thing that complicates that a little bit is that having a kind of some kind of granularity in the situation where people are engaging and in the powers of the other side kind of also allows for some of that stuff. Like if you, you know, if you're fighting on, I mean, that's why, although I hate the aesthetic of battle maps, I mean, I get it. Like the idea is if you have a set piece terrain, you can do more interesting things on it yes. that are kind of fun. And, and, that's not totally like, uh, so I, I feel like kind of conflicted about this. And also the old editions evolved, like um, not, not evolved in a normative sense, like it's better later, but they, they took a certain trajectory. So by the time you have AD&D 1E and you have Gary Gygax writing like military tactical modules, like against the giants right. or, or um, my favorite, the hidden temple of Thrizden, um, all he's giving you are orders of battle. He's like giving you what I'm asking for on the back of the flashcard. He says, this is how they'll fight. Yes. When the alarm sounded, these guys will come, then these guys will come. There's like all these notes for somebody who's running, gonna run like a kind of immersive kind of combat scenario. So I don't know. I have mixed feelings. I, th I have mixed feelings about I, all this. I think there could be some just very simple mechanics to give to each creature uh like maybe one creature has a special power and it doesn't have to be complicated i think that could reinforce the way that you would play them like for instance i lost mine and found found over ah, i can't say yeah. it but the um i believe somewhere in there there was like a, a goblin chief who had a bunch of like wives or hench people around him and it, i think if i recall correctly i think if he got attacked he could just simply put one of those in front of the attack and they take the damage instead, which is like narrative. Like it's a mechanical thing that just is very narratively. Like it fits. It's funny. And it kind of isn't breaking anything, but it's like, wow, that's just kind of, um, it, it makes it for interesting combat. I mean, for like goblins and such, I mean, kobolds, I think later editions, they kind of added some things, but but I think with 5e, it's it's sometimes a little complicated with all the, you know, the reactions and, you know, whether you can disengage. I mean, it, it can get kind of a mess. But, you know, I just think that some differentiation with some simple mechanics could make the creatures easy to use, but also not require a lot of cognitive ability. That's a problem at the table, right? Because we're staring and we're thinking about 12 different things when we're running a game. We need things to be simplified, not complicated. Right. I'm trying to think of the most interesting combats types things that I've run before. I mean, you know, I think often when I've run combats, the it's been the best when it's a nail biter, but that's different. That's just about how on the knife's edge everybody right. is. They get into a situation, it's real hairy, it gets out of hand and it's a memorable in that kind of way. But but if I think about like what, you know, how the foes responded and kind of what um, was, yeah, what simple powers. I mean, there are some things like this, like, um, like you know what's totally ter terrifying? Ghoul paralysis. Um, because that's like a kind of insta kill. 
Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's appalling. I mean, it, that's, that's something that's, or like, um, I once ran uh, a high level group up a rival adventuring party that was like, um, they were like travelers from another dimension sort of. And I gave them, although we weren't using psionics in the game, I just gave them psionics, which I just treated. I didn't use whatever ridiculous psionics rules. I just wrote down what the power was. And then I said that they, um could use it like x number of times at will uh and it was ter you know it was actually terrifying because they could just make all these things happen you know that were clearly like psychic power type things right and that broke the rules of the game in a way because they weren't casting a spell they were <laughs> they could be they could continue to fight and just you know um and I, that did make combat really fun and interesting because it was like was it because your your yeah. was it because your players were um, like they knew the rules really well and they were competent and so they saw something that broke their rhythm is that why it was more terrifying do you think yeah kind kind of that's right I mean and they they knew that the things that the people had unknown powers. I mean, these, this is in my Dreamlands game and these were um, dream. These were people from the Dreamlands of the Dreamlands. So uh, these are the Phantomerians. They were yeah. the, the, and they sail the Oneric seas between different dream worlds. And they were kind of like my, um, you know, they're kind of like cosmic. I mean, they're kind of like cosmic travelers. Uh, and so that was their vibe. And yeah, I mean, just the fact that they could, I mean, they could do things like just um, throw up a wall of force or just control someone. I mean, that one they had to stop what they were doing, but they could do all these different things, which are actually just psionic powers from 1E, AD, and D. I just looked at the psionic powers. What are they? Okay, let me just give each of them right. one. And then yeah just that these effects just started hitting and the players they that that's not really how the rules of dnd work normally we weren't playing with psionics and so the normal rules are well you know someone's casting a spell they're casting a spell that's a known thing i mean you can interrupt it um anyway you know what the spells are roughly um maybe they have some weird spell you don't know about but normally but it's largely it was disturbing the players uh, largely because um it uh, they no longer had confidence in the rules, yeah. right? Yeah, as basically. Far as they, that's right. You, you assume that meta knowledge provides you, well, we can do this and right. fireballing goes this far and whatever. But all of a sudden you're like, no, these break the rules. Right. These guys are from the dream. These are the dream. You know, they're in the dreamlands of the dream. They're in the dream from the dreamlands of the dreamlands. It's not going to, um, this is not going to work like that. Um, yeah, so that that was kind of fun, and that had the changing it up kind of vibe. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. This whole information conveyance. I mean, obviously, it's it's probably something. It's going to have to take. Whenever we're, we're not going to work out here, but that's just definitely something that <clears throat> is on my mind, and especially as you know, I put out you know, product and trying to, you know, because a lot, a lot of it I decide to do for myself, but I don't know if that conveys to other people as well, but 
you know, the assumption is if it's easier for me to read, it makes it easier for other people, but that may not be true. It's a good first guide, but you're right. It's not, <laughs> not universally going to be reliable. Um, yeah. And I think I also dabble with other systems. So uh, I think you're working, you know, within the OSR D&D scape. Yeah, it makes things simpler in a way. I mean, I have started like kind of dabbling in other things a bit, but um, or at least like mutating the, the, the hybrid forms. Um, but I you're right that it simplifies greatly. Um, and in a way, that's why I've been attracted to uh, OSR stuff is I kind of just want a common language and I kind of don't want to worry too much about Now, do you that. think if you, if you decide to break up, let's say you, you come up with something crazy, yeah. like me, crazy, but radical, you yeah. say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to break this up the way the information is conveyed, uh, because there's already an established, um, way of doing things. I mean, do you feel that, 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 that the novelty or difference in this could hinder or do you think that doesn't really matter? I mean, I think it could, but I do think that, um, I, I don't know how true this is anymore because things have changed a lot recently, but my, my sense up until now has been that one thing that um, people who are playing retro games are pretty good about, have been pretty good about is that when someone comes up with a better way to do something, like in terms of information design and presentation, right. people are like, whoa, this is good. Let's all do it this way. And then it kind of spreads. And I, um, and so I think there is an, an openness to that kind of thing if it's really useful and nifty. I mean, I think you just have to explain it to people and put it out there. I, so I don't think it would, you know, I think people like that kind of thing basically. Um, like, um, yeah. I know it's a, a completely different system, but I mean, now we're seeing, uh, I think it's such an inf. So I think initially the, um, <clears throat> the OSR community was largely a certain group of people mm -hmm. and, and they grew up with the same systems. They did the same things. They innovated some things. I think now we're starting to see a lot of people who are coming from a completely different sphere, you know, that's in, it's interlacing with this and changing it, simplifying it. I mean, all the way from, you know, dungeon world to, mm -hmm. uh, is it Merk Bork or however mm -hmm. you pronounce it. And, uh, I think even though I, I think it, even uh, the ultraviolet, uh, grasslands with, uh, with Luca, you know, I think they're really trying to do some very different things, but still they have that same aesthetic. And it, it doesn't seem like that stuff is being rejected, at least from what I mm -hmm. can tell by the OSR community. So I think there's definitely plenty of opportunities for new ways of thinking within the same kind of rule set. Oh, for sure. I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much <laughs> proliferation. I mean, Luca's stuff is so innovative and so interesting yeah. and like just the whole structure of um, the, you know, this kind of extended point crawl across huge distances and then the rules about i mean there's the imaginativeness and the graphic design presentation of it which is oh, just yeah. out of this world but then there's also 
actually it's extremely interesting on um, travel on like rules about discoveries and exploration there's a whole kind of um set of things that are really neat or again look at chris kutalik's all the ways he uses all the things he, he does so many things but the way he uses tracker you know the, like the chaos index he's got these kind of cosmic trackers where the world is always reacting on a kind of cosmic level to yeah. the ways the players mess around with things you, you know um the kind of balance of forces and that you know it brings like the kind of um it brings the kind of cosmology of the setting into the world but it's also you, you know or again the um kind of i i was developing like you know these downtime activity systems and i i just think they're you know or or again um uh you know emmy allen's um you know think about her depth crawl uh with gardens of yin and stygian the stygian library the um so many new forms you know um right and they're all they and so i do think you know there's a lot of innovation now but i agree with what you're saying that different groups of people have been involved at different times and that they really can be quite different uh groups of of people i mean they're the people who say i never stop playing ad and d right that's definitely I like a subset <laughs> that's a subset it, that's one thing it, and it was much more of the scene at one point and then right. I think, you know, and then there are the people who, you know, are 30 years old now who are playing, who uh, maybe get into playing, you know, with 5e or even with one of the with a contemporary retro clone or one of these post OSR OSR games um, like Troika or Morkborg or any, any of these. Um, but it, it's probably for a different reason, but I mean, it seems like a lot of the OSR community may rail or some may in that group may rail against 5e, mm -hmm. but you don't see vitriol against, you know, ultraviolet grasslands or many of these others. And it's, you know, so it's, it's kind of interesting how maybe in some ways those could be, you know, more subversive in a sense. Um, but they're not the 800 pound gorilla and they're kind of accepted. So I, I, it'd be interesting to see what the future is going to hold as, as things morph. There are a lot of things <clears throat> that determine the fact that 5e is, gets, come, comes in for attack. I mean, right. You pointed out, it's not just that people don't like the rule set. I mean, it's also about lots of things but among others it's about the you know we would say disliking some of the business practices of the corporation right but, but it's also about um the fact that um people kind of care about it more than they care about other games so on certain social media platforms right. if you talk about it um you have wider reach so and i'm not even well, saying I that as something it, cynical mm -hmm. at all i mean i'm just saying it's just true everybody says this the people who hate on it are like well i don't like always hating on this but you know i have to say that when on twitter i hate on this um tons of people retweeted and then when i when i tweet about my own design they're like <laughs> you know five people like it and there's like a reality there about where people's attention is focused i mean there's also a thing about twitter and what the twitter twitter generally feeds on a, a kind of hot take 
thing, but but I do think that's so. There are a lot of determinants. There's not liking the game. There's being bummed out about the business practices, you know. And then there's and then there's just like the the, the Twitter dynamic. Yeah, I think and, what's seen as a steward, right, of of the legacy of of Gygax. So I think that's probably where these other people are not seen as stewards of a legacy, right. and that's probably why they can get by even though they may be more subversive. <laughs> and that was to be interesting is I'm wondering how all these other designs in 10 years will affect the OSR more than what 5e ever did. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, 5e is, uh, you, you know, from an OSR point of view, 5e is clearly, uh, sorry, this is getting me into trouble, but it's clearly the most compatible with the kinds of style of play of any edition back to second edition. Um, that is third and fourth were far less compatible with like uh, kind of OSR-ish play. I mean, I think there are some real obstacles in 5e, even though I'm not, I don't play it. I mean, I, you know, my son does, so I have run 5e, yeah. but I don't, I don't play it, so I don't know it that well, but it, um, it has some obstacles. Like I think the experience rules are, make it very hard to play um in in a style that a, a lot of osr games play and then i i also you know all the ratcheting up of power which renders like takes off the table a lot of the things that osr games can tend to focus on at least in low levels um, yeah my belief is that player expectations in the game is largely defined by the media that they consumed when they were younger. Sure. So for me, it was Thunder of the Barbarian right. and, you know, maybe got some Conan movies later mm -hmm. on, but, you know, but then the next group grew up with, you know, He-Man and Thundercats and, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, I think, you know, for me, I really, I'm really not a fan of high fantasy. Absolutely do. I'll play it, but, when I do, I keep thinking, this is why I don't like high fantasy. This is why I don't like high fantasy. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it is certainly about what I came across early on that captivated me. But it's also that when I got back into role playing, I started reading all the Appendix N stuff. Yeah. And it, it just so, it seemed like it was mainlining the stuff that had gotten me excited early on in little bits and bobs. And so for me, that does set a lot of the baseline. Um, like, especially, honestly, Jack Vance, that's a lot of the baseline for me. Um, uh, and, and other things too. I mean, the sword and the kind of pulpy sword and sorcery right. vibe, um, even of Liber, who is not my, if I'm saying his name right, Liber, um, who is not my favorite author, although at his best, he's like amazing. But, you know, but that kind of vibe of the sort of pulpy sword and sorcery kind of ne'er-do-well shenanigans. Yeah. Um, that, that, that I find pretty like. And no. the threats don't have to be like world ending. You know, oh, it could just be very personal. Oh, of or course. Just, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that's. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And and about like it can also be about I mean, one thing that's fun about Vance is that it's about impossible people and they're I mean, the, the wizards really are doing like crazy things, but they're also petty 
people who are involved in power politics with one another in like vengeful and personalistic ways. And there's a way, you know, like the other people are the obstacles. It's not trying to save the world so much as. Um, Sounds like politics. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little <laughs> bit of it, or like it's a little bit of a comedy of manners. There's a little bit of, like, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Politicians, okay. The uh, yeah, I got these powers. So, and I've not read in advance, so that's um, yeah. You should read the Leoness. I mean, I you know my favorites in a way are the Dying Earth books, but the Leoness books are his kind of the most fantasy. And they're really beautiful. They're really good. They're really fun. Um, yeah, I've heard good things about them. I, I think my growing up was um, John Carter of Mars, Conan, uh, Elric. Yeah, know, for all its uh, problems, I mean, like the weird race thinking and all that stuff. I love the. I do love the Conan. I love Conan's um, stories. I, I found yeah. them very, you know, very compelling in some way. I mean, I don't always want to play that way, but it's always in the kind of mix of possible things like red nails or the elephant in the tower or any number of those things. Um, and I wish I'd read the comics, which seem like kind of pure essence of Conan, but I never read those back in the day. I should read them sometimes. People yeah, love them. I, yeah, I read them. People still talk well of them. I need to probably go pick up the the collections because yeah. they're not that hard to get a hold of. Yeah. Well, I think we'll uh, end here for okay. for tonight, at least as far as this discussion goes. So Good. It was wonderful I'll to talk, talk to you. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment right now to rate the show. Have you done it yet? Hey, thank you very much for doing that. That simple act of rating the show means a lot. It's almost as good as giving me cash. Almost. And this is going to be an exciting year, and we will get through this together. Well, metaphorically, we are together, even though we sit apart in our own individual COVID bunkers. Well, Zine Quest 3 is on its way, and I still have a lot of work to do. Same is true for many of you. Until next time, dear ramblers.